So we are looking at 1 Samuel 29 this morning. And as we uh, saw in the text, there's a little bit of a juxtaposition that exists between last week's text where uh, the kind of the the camera kind of panned in verse 28 to look at Saul uh, from verse 27 where, or excuse me, chapter 27 where we were looking at David. Now, if you recall in chapter 27, we kind of got this story of of David running to the Philistines and uh, out of the land of uh, Israel, he's running from Saul who's trying to kill him and he goes and he's living among uh, this Israel's historic enemy, people who hate him, and he has found a way to kind of make peace there, and he's done this act of deceiving Achish the king by going out and defeating uh, these other tribes who were in the area and bringing back the resources uh, to uh, this ruler, Achish, and as he's there, uh, Achish is thoroughly convinced that David has all along been defeating Uh, the other tribes of Israel that he's been going through and conquering these people and he's further making himself an enemy of Israel and David has not let it be known that he's in fact not fighting against Israel and so Achish is thoroughly deceived but now as we and so and so as we end chapter 27 we come to this portion where uh, now the Philistines are preparing to go out to war and David is there with this group of people and his men and the the king Achish is like hey I want you guys to go out and fight with me against Israel And now David's in a bit of a predicament. He's kind of in a tough spot because now he has to actually go and fight against his people. He actually has to go and make his way into battle against people that he's supposed to be their future king. So why would he want to do that? And so he's not really completely sure how he's going to get out of this. And right as we get this this kind of bit of tension, this bit of suspense, like how in the world is David going to get out of this? Because now they're going to find out that he's a fraud and then the Philistines are going to kill him. As soon as we get to that portion, then the story immediately pans to look at Saul, who is the current king of Israel in chapter 28. And we get Saul seeking wisdom for how Israel should go into this battle. We understand that Saul is not hearing what he he believes he should be hearing from God. And so uh, he then goes out to seek out instruction about what the battle will be like, how he should attack And he does this through supernatural means uh, by searching out someone who practices witchcraft. And throughout Israel's history, it was always said that they should not participate in witchcraft. They shouldn't uh, practice that. They shouldn't go to uh, a medium or a sorcerer or someone who contacts the dead. And this explicitly is stated uh, for Israel. But what the reason behind it is because God has explicitly said that he is Israel's king and that he would be the one to instruct them, that he would give them insight, that he would give them his word. And so they are prohibited from contacting, uh, from reaching out to these other supernatural avenues and are explicitly told that if they need something, that they should speak to God about it. But curiously enough, Saul is not, when he does go to find out from the Lord about what he should be uh, seeking the Lord, he doesn't get a response. He doesn't hear from the Lord. And so in our minds, we say, well, it's justified. Saul should go to find out what's going to happen from another means because he went to speak to the Lord about it and God didn't want to tell him what he should do. But it's precisely what we find through God's silence that Saul should have learned what he should have done. 
right? He's not suffering for a lack of information. The, the information that he should have received is not given to him, and it's not given to him precisely because he's under the Lord's discipline. Because in addition to being told that they should seek God about, uh, about anything, questions that they would have, what they might do, as the king seeks the Lord about how he should lead the nation, He's also explicitly told, and God's people are explicitly told, if you, if you go your own way, if you want to make your own decisions, if you want to go do your own thing, if you want to make your own rules, the Lord will let you do that. But you shouldn't expect to hear from him. He, as a matter of discipline, in order to help you understand that you have gone your own way, he will not speak to you. And so because Saul has not been, is not receiving from God, what he should understand is that God is, is disciplining him. He's trying to remind him that, Saul, you've been going your own way. You've been doing your own thing. You've been trying to make your own decisions. You need to listen to me. He should have taken that silence and understood that to mean that it's time for him to change, to reorient his life around obeying God. But instead, he doubles down and he says, well, if the Lord's not going to speak to me, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go my own way. And he further distances himself from the Lord. And as he's there, he's told that he's going to, uh, he goes and he meets this this woman who is a medium, who's practicing witchcraft, and uh, it seems that she's shocked and surprised at the fact that uh, Samuel appears and basically tells him the same thing that Samuel told him while he was alive, that the kingdom's going to be taken away from you, uh, you know, and the result of which is that you're going to die in battle. Um, this, is, this is what we get. The Lord breaks in even to overrule the supernatural aspect of this woman practicing witchcraft. But now as we come to chapter 28, or excuse me, 29, we get the contrast then of another man who the camera panned from in chapter 27. We look back to David. What's happening with David? What's going on with him? Well, we saw in chapter 28 how helpless Saul was. So helpless that he couldn't hear from the Lord. So helpless that he had to go to uh, this woman who was practicing witchcraft. So helpless that when he received the word from Samuel, what would happen, he's like, he falls down and he can't get up off the ground. He has no energy. He's helpless again. And now we find David in a seemingly uh, equal situation where he is also himself a bit helpless. He's at the mercy of the Philistines. He has marched into battle with them. He's with this group of men. He's got about 600 men or so, which is too, too few men to take on this you know, great army of the Philistines. It's, you, you can't defeat a, an entire army with just this group of people. David is painted in this similar position. Here's how it's described in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. So two cities, two, or two kind of region areas, they're kind of on opposite sides of a valley. We've got uh, the Philistines with all of their armies in one area, and then we've got uh, the Israelites with all of their armies 
in their area. And as they're amassing their group of people, as they're organizing for war, they're lining their troops up. In verse 2, we read, The lords of the Philistines were passing on by the hundreds and by the thousands, right? So they've got them all organized into these different military groups ready to attack. And David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. So David and the men, they gather together. Uh, They're marching with Achish's troops into battle. And they're lining up with their group of people at the back of this uh, uh, army. They're kind of one of the the latter formations. And as they're there, uh, the commanders of the Philistines, verse 3, said, what are these Hebrews doing here? Right? It's a strange sight to see all of a sudden the people that you're about to fight, some of them among your ranks. It's a little bit weird. You're lining everybody up and all of a sudden you realize like, like there's people from the other team in our huddle. There's people here. Like why are, why are these people here? Like you guys, you guys are doing something different. Why are you among us? It would have been very confusing to the rest of the Philistines to see this, of course, to see them walking around. But it also would not have been entirely uncommon because the Philistines often used mercenaries, those people who uh, they joined the battle to fight and to either free themselves or to make money, uh, to be promised a a portion of the spoils in order for uh, an army to have victory. They would often take in mercenaries. And so perhaps this is the case here. But we see that this group of people, they, they have an issue with it. Now, as they're passing by, the commanders of the Philistines are like, what are these guys doing here? Like, why, why are they here? David and his 600 men. But interestingly enough, as David is like, oh my gosh, like I'm walking through hundreds of like these, these formations of hundreds and these formations of thousands. And me and my men, my 600 men who are, we're marching through and we're like looking to where we're going to line up and all the while trying to figure out like how in the world are we going to get out of here? How are we going to get out of this? Like, how are we going to escape this situation? Right? Already, the other Philistines are like, what in the world are these guys doing here? Like, why are they here? And Achish comes in and he defends David. He's like, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. So Achish comes out hot. He's like, oh man, you guys, like this is my rock star. This is my, my best fighter. This is the ultimate warrior. Like, why would you guys not want this guy in the battle? Achish is thoroughly convinced that David is just like the hot stuff. Like he needs to be here. Achish has been thoroughly deceived by David all along thinking that David has gone out and he has been someone who has been fighting against Israel. And so he's like, no, you guys want this guy in the battle. He's like, he's working really hard to get David to be involved because everybody else has a problem with it. Right? To the rest of the Philistines... Like, they're, they're confused. Like, why is he here? But the Philistine king is like the one who's coming out to defend David, to be like, no, you guys shouldn't say bad things about him. He's awesome. <laughs> it's just like this really weird juxtaposed situation. But they come back in verse 4, and they say this, but the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place 
to which you have assigned him. Right? Here's the thing that's a little bit ironic about this. The Philistine kings, these commanders of the army, they have a higher sense of morality than Saul does. Like when he's not getting his way, he's like, oh, I'm going to just go to like somebody who I cast out, this medium. I'm like, oh yeah, you're not supposed to be in the land. I'm going to go out to you. But the Philistine commanders are like, they find somebody from the opposite army in. And even though one of their fellow people is vouching for him and saying like, oh, he's totally on our side. They're like, no, like get him out of here. Like they have this higher sense of morality at this point. This is how far Saul has drifted. He doesn't even stand up to the level of these Philistine commanders. He's made his determination that he's going to do what he wants more so. uh, And he's dug in even more so than these Philistine commanders. They couldn't believe that David is here and they wanted him gone. They could not believe this. They say, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. Right? So what, that, what does that mean? They're not saying like, oh, okay, well, David, you should go back to Israel. They're telling uh, Achish, hey, wherever he came from, whatever he was doing good stuff for you, just take him back there. Which for David, that meant to go back to this city called Ziklag. Now, the reason that they don't want him, uh, there's, there's a couple reasons for this. First, they say, he shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men here. So the Philistine commanders, they're opposed to David and his men fighting alongside them for several reasons. The first one is that David and his men could turn on them in the midst of the battle. They're like, look, here's the deal. It might look like he's on your side right now, but as soon as we get into the midst of the battle, he might flip it around and start fighting against us. He might take over, he might change things, right? And as you think about it, they're thinking about it from an absolutely strategic position because where's David? He's at the back of the pack. He's at the very end. He's at the last group. He's in the rear with Achish. So if Saul and his men are coming from the front and all of a sudden David decides like, oh, I'm going to start fighting for Israel now. Now all of a sudden they've got the Philistines in the middle, And they can close in from both sides. It would be a perfect strategy to have this group fighting from behind. While Saul engages them from the front, David can fight from the back and cut down a lot of people without them even having faced them. He can just wreck through a whole bunch of people with his 600 men. But more than that, it seems like something was in their mind. The Philistines have experienced this before. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 14 there was a time when the Israelites were in the Philistine ranks in a battle. And as Israel started to prevail, what happened? The Israelites switched sides. They're like, oh, just kidding. We're not on the Philistine side anymore. We're on Israel's side. And all of a sudden, they had this problem. First Samuel 14, 21 describes it. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Right? So this has happened to them before. So there's like something there that they're like, okay, like we really don't trust this. Like he's at the rear. We've had this before. 
We had lost that battle. We don't want to experience this again. So this is one reason. There's a strategic reason. But then they also say David has incentive even more so to do this. Because how could he better reconcile himself to King Saul than to show up with like, you know, like look at all the Philistines I've killed. If you were somebody who was on the run and you've gone to this foreign land, he says, how, what better way for him to make his way back into Israel, to make his way back into their good graces and to say, oh, all along I was not really on their team and look at all the people that I've destroyed and, you know, uh, you guys should welcome me back. So they have this in their mind. But then thirdly, the reason why they object to this is because David is a famous Philistine destroyer, right? It seems like there's like this, this song that keeps being sung of David is like an earworm. Like it gets in everyone's head and like they can't stop. Everyone throughout 1 Samuel just keeps talking about it. Saul's upset about it, right? The, the different, like, the different uh, enemies of Israel, every single time they come near, they're like, isn't this David of whom it says Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Like, this song will not go away. It keeps coming up again and again and again. It's like on repeat, right? It's like every single time David tries to do something, all of his enemies like get rickrolled again. And they're all like, oh my gosh, here it is again. Yes, this is what's happening. Right? His fame preceded him. Why would we allow an insanely great Philistine destroyer to be in the midst of our battle? It literally says he has slain his ten thousands. Like, yeah, this is the guy that we want in the middle. We want to give him full access to the heart of our army. Great idea. Great plan, guys. This is what the, they're saying. This is what the Philistine commanders are coming back with. They really want him gone. But Achish, he loves David. Verse 6, Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in this campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So this is where it starts to get really crazy. Because now Achish reluctantly goes to tell David, you can't go into battle with us. I know you love battle, David. I know that you're like our number one star. I know I was looking forward to seeing you crush it for the first time. But you can't go. More than that, he's so convinced that David is just absolutely amazing, that he's just, he's, he, he is uh, just this impeccable warrior. He says, he starts off his, his communication to him by like adapting and honoring David by using the name of the God of Israel, even though he didn't recognize or care about the God of Israel. He says, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. So he's trying to like honor David by using the name of God and declaring David's honesty like, oh man, you're, you're like so honest. You're so amazing. He's trying to like, you know, bring all of like these encouragements to him, which was ironic in light of David's whole plan to deceive Achish this whole time. I mean, he's been lying to him this whole time saying like, oh yeah, like we went and did this raid here against 
against this area and this region and this city. And like, here's all the, here's all the spoils of that war. And this whole time, and, and Achish is like, man, you're like the most honest warrior we've ever had. Like, it's just like, it's, it's, it's crazy. But he says, you've got to go back. I really wanted you to go out into battle. You've got to go back. Go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, verse 8, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Okay, like what's happening here, right? All of a sudden, David gets the perfect way to not go into this battle. And like, is he stupid? He's like saying like, but why can't I go? Like he's like, it's like he's, he's, he's arguing. He's trying to figure out like, what's the deal? I thought about this a lot. Trying to kind of figure it out. Like, what the heck is going on here? Is David in one of those positions where he has, he's trying to sell his performance? Like, oh, please don't make me go. Oh, yeah. Oh, I really wanted to be there with you. And like all the while, he just knows like these other Philistine commanders have overruled Achish and there's no way it's going to happen. And he's going to have to go anyways, but he's just trying to beg for the sake of making, really selling his performance because he doesn't know what the outcome of the battle will be or what the next day is going to hold is this the reason or is it something where david has his identity so wrapped up in being a warrior as soon as he gets around it as soon as he smells and hears the sights of war or hears the sounds of war people sharpening their swords and sees the, the infantry lined up, he easily refer, reverts back and he's like, I don't know who we're fighting. I don't really care what we're fighting, but like, this is something I'm known for. My glory is found in this moment. People have songs about me. They're saying, you're a legend. You're amazing. You've done this before. Is it something where he's let his heart drift to the place where all of a sudden he wants to be recognized? And maybe if he goes through the battle and he cuts down some of the people of Israel who are the, you know, oh, like I don't like that person anyways. This person deserved to die. He went through and fought against some of the most, you know, or the, some of the least righteous of the, of the group. Maybe he could have made peace with it. Is this what's happening? Is he chasing his own fame? Is he chasing his own glory? Is he wanting to see that exaltation of self? You know, the text doesn't really tell us. We're not really given that, that indication that that's exactly what was happening here. But I think what we do see in the midst of it whether it would be David trying to sell his performance a little bit more, or whether it would be David's sinful, selfish heart trying to get a little bit more fame for himself, trying to get an opportunity to display his power and his might. Regardless of that situation, 
we find that the Lord is ruling and reigning, that he's the king. He's not given the possibility. Because by what means does the Lord rescue David and his men from this situation? He rescues them precisely through the commanders of the Philistine army. They're like, we don't want this guy around. He's not one of us. He doesn't belong here. His identity is not with us. He shouldn't be among us. It's the Lord who uses this sinful group of men, this pagan group of people together, who were coming to fight against his people. He's, he uses the leaders of this group to get David out of his circumstance, out of his situation, to save David from himself. You see, the person who's at work here to bring this rescue, it's not Achish, it's not Saul, it's not David, it's not the Philistines, it's the Lord. The Lord is at work to rescue his people. The Lord is at work to provide a way of escape. It's the Lord who's at work. When we get ourselves in over our heads, when we put ourselves into a position of trouble, it's the Lord who's at work. There's always a way. There's always a way for us to have this victory. You know, too often we get ourselves into positions where we're stuck, where we're in an endless cycle, where it seems like we can't break free. But the scriptures tell us that when we experience temptation, when we experience uh, you know, opportunities to sin, we're always given a way of escape. He always provides for us a way to escape that. A way for us to exit. But more than that, what we need to remember is that he knows precisely what it means to be in those situations. Right? The book of Hebrews tells us that he has been tempted in every point, in every aspect, in every area of life, yet without sin. And so not only do you have a way of escape, you have someone who meets you in that moment. Who meets you. Jesus meets us in that moment of hardship, of trial, of temptation. When we face the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, when we face the pride of life, when we're tempted to build our identity on other things, we can remember that Jesus has been there. And he meets us there in that moment. When you're tempted to think, I can't get out, I'm the only one. I can't get out of this. The only way that I'm going to succeed the only way that I'm going to survive is if I give in. The only way that I'm going to ever find happiness is if I give in. Jesus is there to meet you in that moment. And to remind you that he has been through it. And he's the only one that can help you. Practically speaking, he's also given you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Discernment. To bring conviction to your life. To bring rebuke when you need it. He's given you the scriptures to remind you of the truths of what you should and should not do. The ways that you ought to live that honor God. 
He's giving you the Christian community so that you might have accountability to help you overcome and to point you to Jesus. You see, there's always a way. There's always a way of escape, and it begins always with Jesus. You can start with other things, but you're not going to have success. The only way that you have success is if you start with Jesus, because he's the only one that can have victory, total and complete. He's the only one who has a track record of rescuing and saving where he's not failed. He's the only one. See, David got himself in over his head. He got himself in trouble. He ran to the wrong place when he shouldn't have. He didn't trust in the Lord when he should have. And yet, here's the Lord overcoming David's own foolishness. The Lord overcoming his tendency to want to go his own way. The Lord rules even over the enemies of Israel. And even though the Philistines seem, even though they appear to be in command, it's the Lord who's at work. And it's the Philistine commanders who say, get this guy out of here. What better time to escape the land of the Philistines when the entire group of the Philistines is out at war, right? Like that seems like a really great time. When they're all the army is there, when the cities are emptied out, this is the time. Listen to the way of escape that the Lord provides. Here's what Achish tells David, verse 10. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. You see what's happening here? They're delivered. They're given this opportunity of escape. David and his men find a way to get out of there. But remember, this, this, these two chapters of 27 and 29 are sandwiched by chapter 28. How does 28 end? Saul decides his own way. He wants to go his own way. He wants to do his own thing. He wants to find direction and wisdom somewhere else. She put the food before Saul and his servants. And then they arose and went away that night. They went out into the darkness. And we find a striking contrast here between 28 and 29. The last line of this chapter 28 is like this moment of desperation where Saul gets this death sentence. He's told that the end is near. He eats his last meal, his last supper together with his men, and they go out into the night. We know what the outcome will be. Even though Saul was seeking the outcome, it's set. The Lord opposes Saul. He goes off into the darkness. But at the end of chapter 29, when David is experiencing his circumstance, when he's looking to his hardship, when he's looking to his trial, as he is there, he walks away 
in the morning, in the light. The Lord is faithful to deliver David out of this circumstance, out of this situation. It's a contrast of God's faithfulness. He's not done with David. He's continuing this work. He's continuing to direct him on. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you. And start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. I mean, I think therein we find the prescription for how we ought to fight against these moments of temptation. How is sin overcome? Through the cross and through the resurrection. In the darkness, Christ fights. In the darkness, Christ pays for our sins at the cross. At, at the cross, he, his blood cleanses us from all of our sin. But yet it is in the light of a new morning, on the third day, we find his resurrection that brings us justification. That says it's been paid in full. That the payment has been accepted. It's through the darkness and the light. Christ has fought in that darkness so that you do not have to fight the darkness. He has fought so that you can come to the tomb and see the resurrected Christ and see that it is accomplished. The tomb is empty. He is alive. And so as he has risen, early in the morning, even his earliest followers went to go and see. They went to the tomb early that morning to go and find him. And they went in, and his grave clothes were folded. And the angel was there, and he's like, what in the heck are you, why are you guys here? He's not here. He's risen, just like he told you. You see, it's our, our way of overcoming temptation, our way of success in life is not us overcoming temptation, but Christ's work at the cross and his resurrection. Your way of escape is to meet Jesus in the morning. To meet him at the cross, to meet him at the tomb, to come in the morning to get your mind right. To orient your heart to him. And as soon, right, what does it say? And to depart as soon as you have light. To get out of there. You don't need to be in the darkness anymore. This is what you need to do to walk with Christ each day. To understand the truth of the gospel. To understand what he says about you. To get it in your mind. So that you might go out and live for him that day. You get out of there as soon as you orient your mind around Christ. And you return to that, that early morning light to meet Jesus each day. To be refreshed, to stand in his light. It's an opportunity that we all have as members of the body of Christ. So don't be like David, who was 
running to Philistine lands. Run to Jesus, who already went to the land of the enemy, who defeated death, so that you could meet him in the light of the morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness, your love towards us. We're thankful that you were faithful even when we are faithless, even when we fail, even when we're far from you, even when we don't remember to look for you, Lord, interrupt us, meet us in that moment. You know what we need. You know the hardships. You know the difficulties. And there's nothing that we can do or say that you've not experienced, that you have not been able to help us with, to meet us in. And so, Lord, we want to follow you. Help us to rely on your Holy Spirit, the leading of your Holy Spirit. Help us to be a people who are leaning on one another in the household of faith. We want to point each other to Jesus. And we want to be intentional. We want to be uh, purposing to meet you in the morning. To find that time when we're tempted to run to the empty tomb, to run to the cross where our sins were paid for, where we can rejoice in your finished work. Remind us of that this week as we walk with you. Show us, Lord, how truly worthy you are that everything else is in comparison is just uh, it falls short of your glory. Lord, we want to respond. We want to respond to who you are in obedience and worship. And so Lord, draw us near to you. Work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you. Amen.